Welcome to Parent University. We're going to go ahead and get started. I know probably people will keep drifting in in the next 10 or 15 minutes. If you need to get up and get a donut or more coffee, feel free to do that once we get rolling. Um, you know, we're having donuts. We'll try to do this every month. Again, anything we can do to get you in here. If it takes donuts, if you need something else, then we'll make that happen. Thank you guys for being here. Um, just to let you know, we've, we haven't done something like this on a Sunday morning before, and without knowing the response, it was kind of difficult to prepare for this. So I didn't know if there'd be eight people in here or 800, so uh, I appreciate you coming so that I uh, wasn't too embarrassed to have like eight people show up. But um, we're going to start with something kind of light to begin with. Every, every month, I'm going to start the first 10 minutes and kind of go through something that's happening in youth culture or pop culture that is significant or that impacts our students. And so that'll be the first 10 minutes each month. And really, the American family has gone through a ton of changes in the last 40 years. And there's been significant changes with the rise of postmodernism and how parents are portrayed in media. So this being the first parent you, we want to start with that. to think about how we're done in media. So let's, uh, let's, let's think about how we even consume media. Um, that has really changed and gone very different just in the last five or ten years. When I grew up, I grew up in a little town outside Knoxville, Tennessee. Okay, And we had, growing up in the 70s and 80s, we had um, three main radio stations. Okay, You had your country station, your rock and roll station, and then classic rock, which was actually 60s and 70s music. You know, now if you go to a classic rock and they play 80s stuff, you're like, wait a second, that's not classic rock. I was there. Um, so, you know, you had that aspect, and then you also have television. Think about it. You had three main channels, right? And PBS, I seem to remember there was like five or six channels, but I couldn't tell you what was on the other three besides NBC, CBS, and ABC, Okay. Now, what is significant about that, besides the fact that we just had really limited choices? And you can't answer back, somebody. Can you tell me what's significant? Okay, there was only a few shows to watch. The thing that I'm really thinking about, though, is think about there's a common experience that's taking place. Uh, If you wanted to watch TV with your family, you were in the room with your parents watching one of those three channels... There were only a few shows that probably really teenagers enjoyed, and so you had limited choices. You would watch those shows with your family, and you would go to school, and the next day, everything that you would talk about, if the A-team was on the night before, and you're in junior high, and you're showing up, and you're going to talk about television, probably you're going to talk about the A-team, because everybody watched it, because that was the only thing on that appealed to junior high students in that time slot. Does that make sense? Okay, now think about the huge change that's taken place just in the last few years. How many channels do you have now? Hundreds. And then you can go, there are internet channels on the internet. There are TV shows that are only on the internet. Um, There are iPods where now you can be, like again, when when I was little, we'd be riding in our big 72 Suburban, right, cruising down the highway, and my, the teen, my older teenage brothers and sisters would be fighting with my parents about, you know, listening to the radio and what song. And so my parents were exposed to all the music that they listened to, right? Because they had to agree and listen to the same radio. Now you can ride in the car and what happens? 
you can listen to whatever you want, and Junior can put his headphones in, and another Junior can play with his uh, PS3, and you're not having the same experience at all. You're not even experiencing media in the same way at all. Okay, this is just one of the changes that's affected the family dynamic and where we're going and what we're talking about. So let's just see, looking at parents over the years, um, Ozzie and Harriet. Now, there you go, ladies. I know you all get up and put your pearls on before you start doing housework and things like that. And that's not, yeah, that's not just a promo shot. I mean, if you've ever watched the show, she's like been vacuuming in heels and pearls and stuff. And I know my wife does that, but a lot of people don't experience that. All right, next. Okay, Father Knows Best. Now, just think about what is being communicated here in the title, right? The title of the show is Dad is Amazing, okay? Dad is the one with the wisdom. Dad is the one who is going to show you and teach you. And look at, they're all adoringly looking at him like that. You see that? Now, that happens to me again at home. I don't know if that's your experience. When I'm at home, my children sit around and just, I bask in the glow of, of their adoration. Um, next. All right, now we move into the 70s and you get into All in the Family. You guys remember this show with Archie Bunker, right? Okay, the deconstruction, again, postmodernism starting to come in, the deconstruction of the family, the deconstruction of the father as, a, as somebody to look up to and emulate, right? What was Archie Bunker like? I mean, he was foul. He was a bigot. He was, he had his issues, right? Now, a lot of it, they were trying to show the real, the realism of, of the family. So I'm not saying that, uh, that there's not some progress here that, that can be lauded, but definitely you start to see a progression though. And again, what I'm talking about is the way we view the family through media. Okay, next. All right. The Brady Bunch. Now, what was significant about this family? One of the first blended families, right? Now, it definitely, uh, I think they were both widowers, okay, in the situation. So it wasn't like the majority of our blended families today. But we started to see the conflict of brothers and sisters that didn't grow up together initially. And so that was a significant point um, in family media. Now, you see what the sexual revolution, the 60s, everything started, the divorce rate starts to skyrocket, right? And then that's portrayed in media. Now you have a divorced mom and the struggles that she's going with. And then you have like the surrogate father who's the, the super, right? Who's, who's next door. I just totally lost his name. Schneider. Schneider. Yeah. You want that to be your surrogate dad right there. Look at that look he's got on his face. All right, next. All right, then we move into the 80s. You've got family ties. And... A real progression even in the way that we looked at the family. Because if you remember some of those old shows, remember going back to Father Knows Best, the father is the key thing. Now the focus, who's the focus on in this show? It was Alex, right? Now the focus shifts to the child. And if you watch that show, I can even remember being, uh, when I was younger watching this show, what used to drive me crazy. In the, in the early years, it was pretty normal. But towards the end of that segment, the parents the dad was actually portrayed as like dumber and dumber. Like his IQ went down as the years went on because they were using him for comedy relief. And so he became the butt of all the jokes, okay? Or he, his stupidity became that. Uh, and actually, Meredith Baxter came out as a lesbian not long ago, which um, that's, a, well, that's a whole other story. Um, Cosby Show. Um, all right, you get into that. This was kind of a, a, a renaissance, if you will, of the American family. And it definitely 
put African Americans front and center. Um, you know, and it, just a, a great show. Now, they certainly tried to show a healthy family, but a family with problems, right? They had all kinds of issues, and they, and they were pretty real about that as we went next. Now, you may wonder, this is not a family show, you would say. Um, but I think these were the two biggest shows in the 90s, uh, Friends and Seinfeld. And what was fascinating about these shows is, is if you read a lot about postmodernism, it talks about how peer relationships instead of the family unit become like huge and, and they describe that as tribal, like you kind of, you're, you're posse, if you will, you're the group of people that you hang out with. And this is reflected again at, with the rise of that in media. And we see groups of friends. Now, what, now here's what I want that's important about this. How were the parents portrayed in these two shows? Do you remember what were the Seinfelds, all of their family's parents like? Just crazy, right? Um, a whack. Now, I realize all the characters except for the main four were kind of bizarre on Seinfeld. But if you get into Friends, not a one of them had a healthy relationship with their parents. And not a one of them wanted their parents to come. I mean, they would be whole episodes around Monica's mom coming and she would be all torn up and freaked out. And then her mom was super dysfunctional and a mess. And, and they just, what, you know, what they were communicating, again, you're watching this show. If you're not really thinking deeply about it, you're saying, my parents are a mess. Okay, now just think about that if you're just ingesting this without processing what they're portraying. All right, next. Then we get to, finally, you have the Osbournes. I don't know if you remember this. Is the, I think the late 90s when it was a reality show, we started to see reality families coming in. And here you had you know, a, rock, a rock icon with his kids being portrayed on a regular basis. Okay, next. Now, The Simpsons actually started in the early 90s. And it's actually one of the longest-running sitcom 80s? It started in the 80s? Wow. Longest-running uh, family sitcom ever. Um, definitely one of the big things that's interesting, if you watch this show, and of course it's satire, but Homer is, again, he's kind of the buffoon. He's the butt of the jokes. The, who's the moral compass in this family? Who is it? It's either Lisa or the mother, generally. Um, the, the guys are completely despicable in, in, within the family unit. All right? Now this, it's gone even farther down. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to see this show. If you haven't, you really should at least watch one episode, because if you have a teenage son, he's watching this show. Okay? Uh, this show is... Basically, it's all about shock humor, and it's very well, if, you, if that's what you're into is shock humor, it's very well written. You will, uh, you will cannot believe. What happens is they just do things you cannot believe they're actually doing on the show, and it makes you laugh because it's just so ridiculous, but it is incredibly crude and base, and the dad, you know, all of the, all of the family characters are, again, nothing that you would want to emulate. But this is one of the only consistencies that we have with, uh, like if I do a survey of students, this will come up, this show will come up over and over again. And if you feel like, well, we only have, we don't have cable because I don't want my kids watching this. If you give them un access to the internet, they're watching it on the internet instead. Okay, next. All right, then here we are with the modern family. This is where we've ended up. 
Um, you've got your traditional family in there. You've got a blended family. And then we have uh, the gay family, uh, the two dads. So definitely you see a progression in the way we view family and the way things are changing. Um, now, again, I don't go through all this. I do go through it to be lighthearted and start with something just to kind of get your mind rolling. But I want you to see that the reason we t- I talk about this is, are you engaging with your kids in what they're watching and talking about how a family is portrayed in either a movie or a TV show or whatever you're doing? Do you say, hey, what do you think about the parents in that? Uh, do you notice that? Because, again, nothing, the one thing that we know about media, about movies and television, is nothing is on accident. Every word is scripted, right? Every prop is scripted. Every single thing is, is they're trying to present a point of view. And they're shaping culture. They reflect culture, but they also shape culture. And so this is something that, again, the reason we go through this is so that you'll be aware of that. Um, so what is, what is the reason that we want to have Parent University anyway? Why, why are we here on a regular basis? Um, part of the, the main desire that I have and the youth ministry has is we've been charged with helping to create mature and equipped followers of Christ, okay? Mature and equipped teenagers who are going to have kingdom impact in their lives. Now, if that's what we've been tasked to do, I'm telling you, we are failing miserably. Uh, and we're failing miserably, especially if we don't partner with you. You are the chief discipler and the one that God has called to disciple your child. And we're here to come alongside you. And so that, one of the ideas of Parent University is to shrink that gap. We feel like parents are way over here, the youth ministry is over here. And so to come together once a month and be able to interact with you and communicate with you is important to us. Another thing is um, we really want to get you to understand um, our philosophy of ministry. As you get to know me, as you get to know other youth staff, we're going to go through these things, and you'll be able to interact and see. Like, we'll do little videos on different staff members so you can get to know who we are. And that just, again, it closes that gap. You understand who I am, where I'm coming from, and it's going to be a little bit easier for us to communicate. Another reason that we want to do this is for you to connect with your small group leader. We have promoted this with the small group leaders of your children, right? Our, our teen discipleship leaders are supposed to be coming to this so that if, if, if you're a parent, you can sit with or interact with your child's D group leader. And that is a huge component. We want, to, we want to make that easy for our discipleship leaders, and we want you to know them and for them to know you. So if you have a student in junior high or high school, uh, we want you to be a part of this. And then, of course, uh, unfortunately, I don't have a magic bullet for any of the problems you might be experiencing with your team. What I can offer you is I have spent the last pretty much 20 years with one foot in the adult world and one foot in the teen world. And all of the people that I work with on a regular basis have their feet firmly in the teenage world. And so I think that I have information that you might need as you're making decisions as a family. Again, I'm not here. I don't have all the answers for you, but I hopefully I will have information to make this worthwhile enough that as you come to this on a regular basis, you'll start to understand the teen world better, and that helps you to make better decisions um, as a parent. So uh, as we get into uh, who, who am I, we're going to start with a youth staff member. It's going to be me, uh, just so, again, I start to, you start to understand who I am and where I came from. 
Um, I was born in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm the youngest of four children, and I grew up in a covenant home. Um, there I am, a lovely, cute little, I don't even know what age that was, but looks just like my son Zane now, so uh, very similar. But I grew up, um, again, I, I became a Christian at a backyard Bible club in Boulder when I was four years old. Now, that's a pretty young age. Um, I think as a covenant kid, now we grew up Southern Baptist, so we didn't use the term covenant kid, but uh, you know, I, I grew up in church. I, I, Perry Reeder, the pastor of Briarwood, said he grew up with, uh, he was saved through a drug problem. He got drugged to church every time the door was open. And I feel like that's how I was saved as well, obviously. I, I made, I prayed a sinner's prayer at a backyard Bible club at four, but I grew and my understanding of God expanded as I grew up within a covenant community in a Southern Baptist church. Um, we moved to East Tennessee when I was eight years old, so I still consider myself a Southerner because from eight, eight on, I was in a little town in Harriman, Tennessee, outside of Knoxville. And I definitely got involved in a youth group. About my eighth grade year, I really started listening to sermons and everything started to become real to me. And I started, instead of my parents dragging me to church, I started saying, hey, take me to church. Now, I also was in a big, a big youth group that had really good-looking girls, and I think that was a factor. But... <laughs> Just being honest. So I grew like a weed, though, in high school, and I grew like a weed in youth group, and it had a major impact on my life. We had an incredible teaching pastor and an incredible teaching youth pastor, and I would just sit and soak it in. I'm, I'm actually an auditory learner, and I learned a ton just by sitting in those sermons and sitting through that stuff. And so I've got the great mullet going on there. You see that? Uh, graduated in 1986. Um, and we didn't even call them mullets back then. You know, there was no name for that haircut. It was just cool. Um, so that's where I was. Now, after high school, I joined the Air Force and um, didn't have money for college. My dad was a, uh, an auto mechanic and then a service manager. So we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And I joined the service in order to pay for school. And I was a Russian linguist in uh, the military. And I really had been a, so I'd been this strong believer, really grew like crazy in high school. And then I had a prodigal experience. I pretty much walked away from my faith for about three years. And I really went to a foreign land. I lived in Italy for two years while I was in the service. And then I worked back at NSA when I came back to the United States. And really God used my marriage to my wife, Cammie, in order to bring me back. There's a verse in Romans that says, Lord, it's your kindness that brings me to repentance. Okay, and God's kindness uh, working in my life for me to realize for the first time that I was a sinner. Because what I realized after I got married, she can throw that marriage picture up there. Um, after I got married, I realized that in high school, when I was this strong believer, I was really a great Pharisee. I mean, I was growing and I was learning, but I was pretty sure God was pretty lucky to have me. Okay, because I, I was a good kid and I, and I knew I was a good kid. And I... My sin just didn't break my heart at all. But once I had the prodigal experience, I'll say, I definitely knew that my sin broke God's heart, and it broke my heart too. And God used that. Now, I, right after Kimmy and I got married, I moved back to my hometown, got out of the service, started going to school at University of Tennessee, and I got my first job at a PCA church in Harriman, a little tiny 100-member, 100 120-member PCA church. And uh, that's when I joined what I consider the grad school of the Christian faith, the PCA. All right, if you're a Christian long enough, you'll eventually end up in the PCA. So 
I joined the PCA and started to be discipled by my senior pastor in Reformed Theology, and I've been in the PCA ever since. Um, after my degrees actually in language and world business, my wife and I went to Russia as exchange students for a year, which was a very impactful year on my life as well and on our life together. Um, and then after, um, after college, um, I jumped back into youth ministry and really just knew that God called me to go to seminary and get a degree. So I went to seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, uh, got ordained in 2001. Okay, so I've been an ordained pastor ever since. This is actually the sixth church that I've been on staff as a youth pastor. And again, I started doing youth ministry in 1991. Um, i tell you all that. I also have four children. This is my family. Um, and that's actually a year old. They're all a little bit bigger now. Um, but I have a teenager now. My oldest daughter, Tears, is 13. And in eighth grade here, I got three kids at PCS. We've homeschooled in the past. We've done a private Christian school. And next year, Tirza will be jumping into public school at Duluth High School. So, you know, I tell you all of that just so you know who I am a little bit. Where am I coming from? How do I, how do I view the world? And that may give you a little bit about where we're going. Um, so, again, what is the goal? Let's, let's move into what is the goal of parenting anyway, all right? What is the goal of parenting? If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, let's go pre-fall, right? God created the heavens and the earth. He creates Adam and Eve, and he tells them to do what? Go forth, be fruitful, and multiply, right? He wants them to be parents. And it's interesting. I had a professor named Richard Pratt back in seminary, and he talked about this idea that what God wants is he, wanted, he wants God followers. He wants to recreate his image and have God followers all over the earth, God worshipers. And that is his ultimate plan, okay? And originally with Adam and Eve without sin, that was going to happen through procreation, and God followers were going to be covering and, and over the earth. Now, because Adam and Eve sinned and fell from grace... Interestingly, now we want to see God followers all over the earth, primarily through evangelism, right? And yet still procreation. Um, it's, it's interesting that um, Adam and Eve were God's first children, right? And they were rebellious. I just really want to point that out. God's the perfect parent, and his kids still rebelled. Uh, Cain, the very first child ever born, was a murderer, Okay. These, are, these things are good for us as parents. When we start feeling beat up a little bit, it's good for us to keep these things in mind. Um, so we have be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And again, when I say that we still are doing it through evangelism, but we're also doing it through procreation, we have this verse in Acts chapter 2. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children. Okay? That is where we cling to this idea that God still cares about Christian families, right? That's why we do infant baptism. We believe that there's a promise for you and your children. Now, it's not a guarantee. You can't say, well, we're both believers and we have... We have children, so they're all going to be believers, right? We know that's not true, but there's still a covenant blessing that goes on covenant children. They grow up within the covenant family, and the opportunity for them to know the Lord 
on a deeper level. They're exposed to so much more of the gospel just by growing up in the church and in a family. And so we pray for them uh, and we, cr- we cling desperately to this verse that says this promise is for you and for your children. Now there's a problem here though, right? Um, a plus B does not equal C, okay? And what I mean by that is you, being, you having a child in a Christian family and you doing everything right does not equal them becoming a Christian. And that's a hard truth for us to grasp and to keep hold of. If you're here today and maybe you have a child that's in rebellion and you're beating yourself up and you're blaming yourself and saying, what did I do wrong? Well, you don't have that much power that you that you can screw them up. God is the one who's in control of salvation. No one comes to the Father unless I draw him. John 6, right? Only God can draw your child's heart to him. You can do everything right, and it's not going to happen unless he is drawing your child to himself. Vice versa, you can't take the credit, okay? If your kids are awesome and they're walking with the Lord, all of us want to go, man, look at my kid. Uh, your kid's in rebellion, but my kid's awesome. Um, I am super aware of this because my oldest daughter is like, and my son, uh, my first two kids are just easy, okay? I didn't know that at first, okay? I thought I was like uber parent or, you know, I was walking around Target and somebody's brat was crying and I was, I was like, you should control that kid. What are you doing? Okay? And then we had our third daughter, uh, our second daughter, Lexi, and our third child. And then I was walking around Target going, don't judge me, don't judge me, you know, pushing the cart around because... I could not control my child, and I, if I, I knew if I spanked her right, it, it wouldn't help. It would just make things worse, and so it was just awful. But boy, it was humbling for me to go, okay, I am not the perfect parent, and I can't take credit for the first two, and I sure don't want to take the blame for what's coming uh, up the pike, okay? Because I'm the same guy, all right? Um, so A plus B does not equal C. I will say this. You can raise... Uh, my wife actually gave me this line, okay? I'm going to give her full credit for this. You can raise a Pharisee and you can raise a prodigal, but you can't raise a Christian, okay? You've got to let that sink in. You can raise a Pharisee and you can raise a prodigal, but you can't raise a Christian. Only God can raise a Christian, all right? Um, so the problem is we have to evangelize our kids and we have to teach them about it, having a kingdom focus instead of a me focus. Now, there's a lot of problems that we have in the modern world with this issue. Um, and let's just start with this one. Uh, this verse, Deuteronomy 11, is one of the uh, salient verses. I'm going to read a broader part, um, and you're going to have just one up on the screen. It says, Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home, And when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give your forefathers. Okay? Now, if we focus on that middle verse, what is an issue that we have with this verse for today, in today's context? What is this saying? Teach them... To your children, talking about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Okay, it's assuming that you are teaching them all the time. I think the context of what it's trying to say is 
In everything that you do, you teach your kids about God. In everything, from the first moment that you wake them up and from the last moment when they go to sleep and then when you're walking along the road and when you're sitting with them. Okay, now let's put ourselves in the context of when this was written, that right, God had just given them the the law, and he's saying, if you want this faith transference, right, that's what we're talking about as parents, we want our kids to walk with the Lord. If you want this faith transference, you've got to spend all this time with your kids. Now, that's what I'm asking is, what is the problem now in today's context? You don't spend any time with your kids. (laughs) And I don't mean that, I don't spend any time with mine either. It is a part of our society, and the way things are changing makes this incredibly challenging. Okay, back in the day, uh, in, in fact, for the first thousands of years of our history, children and parents walked alongside the road together all day long, right? If dad's a farmer, hey, guess what, son? It's six o'clock, you're getting up, mom's cooking a big breakfast, or, and then we're going out in the field until nine o'clock at night, right? And so he's with his dad all day learning from him, watching him, watching him interact. If you, I mean, Jesus as a carpenter's son was right there with Joseph growing up around the wood shavings, right? And growing up in that environment. And so we don't do that today. Now we get up and if your house is like mine, you get up and you're rushing around and it's incredibly busy and you're trying to get everybody dressed and get hair combed and get shoes tied. And then you're in the car. And again, it's possible that you're listening to one thing, they got the headphones in. You, you see what I'm saying? Everyone's not even communicating in the car. You're dropping them off at school, boom, boom, boom. You go to the office. Mom's going to work too, often, right? Uh, these things are going on, and no one is connecting. Nobody's together. Um, what do you think? I, I saw a statistic. I'll try to get the exact source for you, but the, the average amount of time do you think that, like, truly engaged time with a child that families have today? 20 minutes. 20 minutes. You're, you're really close. It's about, I think it's about 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes. With, with, if you have four children, if you spend 20 to 30 minutes a week, I'm not talking about a day, I'm sorry, did I say a day? A week of true FaceTime. And again, I had this interaction with my daughter, Tirza. She's 13. She still wants me to tuck her in. And I'm, I, I have to apologize for her because you're probably going to hear a lot about my kids in this over the course, so... But she still likes to be tucked in, and I was like, why? Sometimes it's just so annoying to me. I'm like, why are you wanting me to tuck you in? I'm tired. I'm sitting downstairs. I don't want to do this. And I walk up the stairs, and I realize what it is, is that's maybe the only real engaged connection with just her and just me that I have in the course of the entire day. Because I've got a 3-year-old, and I've got a 13-year-old, right, and everything in between. And the 3-year-old and the 6-year-old really demand my time. And I think my two older ones miss out sometimes. Um, And so, you know, how are we going to engage our kids um, on a regular basis if we're not with them? The pressure is now even more on us because we have such limited time with our kids to be intentional with it, to be intentional and to engage with them. And that's that's what we're talking about. Uh, and here's a problem that I just want to point out, and it's a good thing for all of us to consider, okay? If you are the main billboard of Christianity in your child's life, you're the main advertisement, right? I mean, they are taking cues from you. And I just want to ask you, are you enjoying God? Is your relationship with God something that you just, ah, you just can't help but talk about the Lord? 
is, you know, I've heard it described this way. Um, a lot of us, our life is so busy, and then Christianity is like, it's kind of like when you get a salad at, uh, you know, at some restaurant, and you're like, I want the dressing on the side, right? Some of us want our Christianity and our church on the side. And most kids view it that way, just to let you know. Even if, even if you don't, they view their life as, I got sports, I got school, I got church friends, I got this, you know, and where's God? Well, he's, he's in one of those pockets, but does God... When really your relationship with God is supposed to be like a marinade, right? You're supposed to dump it in and toss that salad, and it's supposed to be on every leaf, every decision you make, everything that you do. And if, if, it, if that is the way you are, then you can see where when you interact with your kids, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk along the road, then every interaction you have with them has to do with the Lord instead of it just being something that you add once a week, okay? So... That is part of the challenge that we have. Um, are we enjoying God? Is that something that as our kids interact with us, you know, you might even want to say, what do you think about God based on the way that I interact with him? What, what, is your, what cues are you getting from that? That would not be a bad thing to ask, um, to ask your kids. Um, you know, are they seeing you when they get up? Are you downstairs reading your Bible? Have they ever caught you praying by yourself or with your spouse? You know, do they ever come downstairs and you know, you're sitting there, you got your Bible open, and you're just in depth with the Word? Um, they need to catch you doing that, right? Uh, if you have a prayer closet, they need to accidentally walk in. Oh, what are you doing on the floor, on your knees? Oh, I'm, I'm talking to God. Okay. Um, how are we modeling that at home? Uh, so we need to train our kids to live in this world and to reach out to the lost world. And here's where in the next few months as we get together at the end of the month that I'm going to be going. And I want you to understand my philosophy of ministry and my philosophy of parenting is really, are we training them to be equipped to live in the modern world, in the world that we live in now? Are we training them to understand and be able to swim in the soup that is modern culture? And let me tell you why, uh, where this came out, is years ago, uh, in, in my first job, actually, I was uh, teaching, Cammie and I were teaching a Bible study of college students. And we were, uh, it was just a small uh, group of students, maybe five. And we had this canned curriculum, and we were doing a thing on sexuality and dating. And it was one of those Bible studies that says, teachers say this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, then, and, you know, it was just, it was so wooden. I hated it. And after about five weeks, I turned to Cammie and I said, this is not getting anywhere. They're not getting anything out of this. This is boring. I'm not going to do this anymore. And after class, one of the young women named Megan came to me and said, hey, can I meet with you and Cammie later? Because we really, we really need to talk. And I said, well, okay, yeah, sure. So we get together. And she says, well, I'm sure that you've noticed over the weeks of you teaching this that I'm not really very engaged and that I'm, my head's down and you, I, I feel my lip quivering when you're talking. And I was like, I was completely oblivious. I did not notice that at all. And I, I was like, yes, yes, I did. Um, so, so she proceeds to tell me a story, though, that is horrific. Um, she grew up in a, in a rural area, again, of Tennessee. Her mom was the vice principal of this small school. 
And so, and when I say small school, kindergarten through senior year was in one building. Not a like, not Little House on the Prairie one building, but, uh, you know, it was a, they had separate classrooms and things like that. But it was, it was still, a, a, her graduating class was about 50 or 60, okay? So a single A school. And growing up with their mom knowing every child and every student and everything that was happening, she didn't date much. She didn't, you know, her mom kind of knew, okay, I know that kid, I know everything about him, I know, you know, and, and it wasn't, she didn't party, she didn't do anything, she was, uh, you know, totally, really secluded and kind of in a bubble, right? Well, her parents, when she graduated, all the joy, everything wonderful going on, they take her to a state university, and they move her into the dorm, and they're really excited and happy for her, and then uh, they leave, and there she is in the dorm at a big state university. Now, what do you think happened? Um, she told me that within two weeks, she lost her virginity to a guy she didn't know, drunk at a frat party. Now, I don't know about you, when I hear that story, when I heard it then and, and when I hear it now, that's when I started to think through and develop a lot of the material that we're going to go through. Because it, unintentionally, what happened was, and these are good Christian parents. I mean, these are engaged Christian parents. They were not, um, she was not equipped to go into the world that she was going into. And so as we talk through things, part of what my goal is, is not that you agree with everything that I say. Again, my goal is to get you to think deeply about what you're doing. If you come out of these uh, this time once a month and say, I love what we're doing and I'm super excited about it. That's great. Um, but if you come out going, wow, you really said some things that made me think we need to make some adjustments. That's, I, I want you just to think deeply about your parenting because it's difficult to think about parenting. We're tired. We're busy, right? Uh, I want to turn the babysitter on when I get home instead of engage my little kids because I want time alone, right? I don't, I don't, my teenager always wants to have the deep, incredible conversation at like 11 o'clock at night when I'm exhausted and I've been up since six. That's just the way teenagers are. And I don't want to engage then. But every once in a while, when you engage, you're going to have victories. You know, earlier we started this out talking about parents and going through how they're portrayed in media. Well, I try to do that. When my kids want to watch a show on Disney or whatever channel, Cammie or I have to sit and watch it with them the first time. And the onus is on our kids to tell us why they should watch the show. I'm not looking for bad things to tell them why they can't. I say, what, what about art is in this show that's worthwhile that you should be putting it into your brain? Okay? And so we start watching these shows. And one of my pet peeves is I hate it when parents are portrayed as idiots. And when I see that, I'm just like, that's not, I hate that. This isn't happening. So I had this victory just yesterday. Tears has said, there's a new show coming on Disney, which again, I have tweens and little kids, so we watch a lot of Disney Channel. And there's a new show coming on, and she said, hey, Dad, I really want to watch that show because I think it's hilarious, but I want you to know I've seen enough of the pilot or enough of the commercial that I know you're not going to let me watch it because the parents are just stupid. Okay, now for me, that's like, yes. She is learning to discern 
with what she's taking in. She knows enough now to know that I won't, I don't have to watch the show with her now because she's learned to do it herself. Where I don't have to be the gatekeeper, she is learning to self uh, educate and self moderate. And this is really the goal. Uh, in Philippians 1, it says this, starting in verse 9 And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern um, what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Okay? Now, look at the middle of this. So this is my prayer, all right? This is Paul's prayer for the Philippian church, that their love would abound in knowledge and insight. Why? So that they may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless. At least on this area, one little area of pointing out how she's being manipulated in media, my daughter is starting to figure out what's happening, okay? And she is learning to discern, and that is what we want to see happening with our kids as, as they go through this. Um, you know, it's interesting because she even, it loses its power. Even, I would actually say now, she probably could watch that show, and it wouldn't affect her. Do you understand? Because she sees, oh, the parents are shown as stupid. I know that. I disagree with that. So it, it loses its power to affect her view of parents because it's, she's aware of it. And that's the thing as we go through. Again, I'll, I'll take you and through music or uh, movies and things like that and kind of point out things the way we're being manipulated each week so that you, when you sit with your kids, can do the same kind of thing and show them these things. So when we start out as parents, let's throw up that next slide. Um, we completely control their environment. All right? Mark, it's that one with the, all the barriers around that. There we go. Okay? When we start out and our kids are little, we completely control the environment that they're in, right? We decide what shows they watch. We decide who their friends are. We can decide, you know, everything about their environment we control. And we tend to see evil trying to get to them from outside, right? There's bad influences out there. You know, even, let's even, not even just evil, but danger, right? You can't cross the street, Okay, you don't want your kids going out and in the front yard and they can't cross the street because there's cars going by. Well, eventually, we have to get big enough that we have to teach them or else we're always going to be crossing the street with them, that we have to teach them to cross the street on their own. So some of those barriers are going to be taken away. And what you should be doing as your kids, especially through the teen years, is those barriers are going to become less and less where you make less and less decisions for them and put less barriers around them and they're making more and more decisions and you're more becoming more of an advisor instead of the one who controls now this is hard we like being in control we like instant obedience we like all these things and for some reason like starting around sixth seventh grade our kids start to have their own opinions and it's really annoying right <laughs> and so all of this starts to work in until ultimately and this is what i want to again i'm i'm trying to get you to remember the end game because there is coming a day when your kids are going to be here. The next one, which is uh, university. Well, this is UGA, okay? <laughs> now, that's your child in the middle, completely surrounded. 
by non-Christians, okay? There's no barriers there. You're not there to put the barriers up anymore. Interestingly, I don't know if you've heard the term helicopter parents. Um, did you know now when, if, if you're taking your kid to orientation, one of the things that the professors and people are having to do is beg the parents to quit calling the, the professors? Because parents are now trying to interact and intercede on their kids' behalf at colleges and universities all over the country. It's a problem everywhere because the parents that control things going on and they just want to keep doing it. I'm not saying you would do that. I'm saying other parents do that, okay? So this is where they're going to be, and they have to learn to put their own barriers in place at this time, okay? They have to learn. So are you putting all the barriers and the things in your child's life, or are you teaching them the barriers that they need to have, okay? Like I meet with a group of of juniors and senior boys on a weekly basis, and every year, when those seniors graduate, I say, all right, guys, you've been in this accountability group for two years. You are going to fall flat on your face if you go and you don't get your own accountability group as soon as you get there. You have to do that. No one else is going to make you do that. And I talked to them about the fact that that first Sunday is pivotal. When that alarm clock goes off, the first Sunday at college, are they going to get up and go to church? Because no one's making them go to church anymore. Are they getting out of bed or are they going to stay uh, right there, snuggled in and go, oh, I'll go next week? Because you know what? If they say, oh, I'll just do it next week, then guess what? Next week it's easier to stay in bed. The week after that, it's easier. Uh, somebody just told me about a study. Bill Wood actually was talking to a, another academic, and he, he was saying that uh, the first two weeks of college actually playing out the way the next, they've done studies that the first two weeks are, have significant impact on where that student's going to go for the next four years. Okay? So they have to learn to put these things in place for themselves. Now, our parenting, if it's not addressing the heart, and if it's not addressing the mind for discernment and teaching discernment, then I think we're missing the mark. That's what we've got to do. We've got to address The heart. See that first slide that I showed you with the barriers and the world trying to get in? There's something very misleading about that slide, okay? But that, unfortunately, we view it when they're little that way, and we keep wanting to view it that way, that the danger is out there. But the danger is not out there. What does the Bible teach us? Where's the danger? The danger's in here. There's enough wickedness in your child's heart to damn them to hell without any evil influences of friends or TV shows or movies or music or anything. It's right here. And no matter what barriers and protections we try to put on the outside, this is the problem. So if, you're, if you and I are doing and things that are behavior modification and going for that route, instead of addressing the heart and the mind and the discernment, we're missing. We're missing the mark. And there's going to be problems down the road. So the ultimate goal, again, is this, is this discernment at where you are right now. You want to address the heart and see here. Now, this is... Again, there's a lot of barriers there, but what, what I want to see happen and what I think you want to see happen is no matter what influence from the world comes in that they face, they have the ability to discern and make the wise choice. Okay, again, kind of like with Tirza with the TV show, she can now make a wise choice because she is learning the process of discerning what's going on. Okay, so I'm going to end with, with this illustration 
Um, just so you can start thinking about this and, and what it looks like. Okay, you have a 13-year-old son, uh, 13 or 14, and he goes to a friend's house, and a bunch of his buddies are getting over for a sleepover, right? Normal kind of thing. Um, they go down in the basement. The parents are either already asleep or on a date or whatever, because these are families that you know and you trust, right? So all his buddies are down in the basement. They're channel surfing, and your buddy has HBO or some movie channel, and guess what's coming on? American Pie. All right, now if you don't know what American Pie is, because you grew up in the 80s like me, think Porky's. Okay, does that help you? Uh, the show, it's a movie about teenagers having sex. That's pretty much all it's about, and it's, there's nothing redeemable in the movie, I don't think. I've not seen it, but I don't think there's anything redeemable in it. Okay, so your 13-year-old is there. American Pie. It's coming on. All the other boys are getting excited. Oh, man, this is awesome. Let's watch this. Now, what is your son going to do? What are the options? Okay. There actually are a lot of options, right? Number one, your son can say, this is awesome. Give me the remote. Let's turn it up. The, you know, lock the door upstairs. So let's, let's turn this up. He can be the chief one rallying everybody to watch the show. Number two, your son can say, I'm not going to watch this garbage. Where's the phone? I'm calling my mom. Come pick me up. Okay. Number three, maybe there's a pool table in the next room and your son might go, guys, I don't want to see this. I'm going to go in the next room and we'll play pool while you guys, while you guys watch this. Okay. You could do that. Number four, your son could engage the others about why do they want to watch this show? Maybe it's not a good idea. Uh, start talking a little bit about purity or about how women are viewed or about what, how he views sexuality and try to engage them and share the gospel with them through this event. Now, of those options, there's degrees of good things that he could choose, right? Which one is the, is the most preferable the last option right the last option where he would engage the kids and try to talk them out of doing that now interestingly okay so if that is and then now it's funny i've used this illustration with another parent and they're just like a 13 year old kid doing that are you kidding me that would never happen and i may agree that might not be where victory is for a 13 year old it might be option two right? Calling mom and going home. It might be, now of course then he's got this whole judgmental thing going on. Now all his friends are going to feel judged. Is he going to have much influence in their life if he does that one? Maybe, maybe not. It depends on how he does it, right? He could say, guys, I got a stomach ache and call mom and go home, right? So now we're teaching him to be a liar. I guess that's not good. Okay. But you see what I'm saying? There's pitfalls. He's a teenage boy. He's got peer pressure to watch this show. He's got peer pressure all in this thing. And he's trying to make a wise choice, okay? But what, my, what I'm trying to propose to you is, okay, if, he's in, if he would choose option A or B or C, what do we have to do to get him to option D? How do we push him down the line so that when he's 17 or when he's 19 or when he's 20 and he walks in his dorm room and his roommate's watching a porn on his computer 
then he says, hey, what's he going to choose then? Because you're not there. Your parents aren't there. Nobody's there. What's he going to choose then? Okay. So this is where we're going. Okay. Over the next, actually next month, um, we're going, I'm going to solve all the problems uh, that you have with your teenager. And we'll cover that at the end. No, I did want to ask you, I've got a couple of announcements and, and some things to go over just housekeeping-wise. I want to try to give you a little bit of time if your small group leader is here or if you just want to talk to each other because I think we don't get enough community together as parents. So I want to end with, uh, it's about, it's the top of the hour right now, so we don't have to be out of here until 10.15. So I want to give you some time to interact with each other or your small group leader if they're here. If your kid's small group leader is not here, you call them next month and say, hey, I'm going to be a parent you. I'd love to sit with you. Um, if you're a small group leader and none of the parents of your kids are here, you might want to say, hey, why don't you guys come? And this will be fun for us to interact and engage with each other at this time. All right, let me say a word of prayer, and then you guys are welcome to, to interact. Heavenly Father, thank you again. It is so, um, such a challenging time in this country to be parents, and yet it is a rich blessing. Um, it's, a, it's a high calling, Lord, and, and so many days we don't feel equipped for what you've called us to do. But because we believe in your providence, uh, we know you don't make mistakes. You're not up there wringing your hands, looking down on us, going, what are they going to do? You called us to be parents in such a time as this. You called us to interact with our children. And you've called us to specifically speak to the hearts of the kids that you put in our care. Um, Lord, I pray for equipping for each one of us that we would uh, be filled with your spirit, that you would give us energy, that you would give us discernment. Uh, help us to be winsome with the gospel, Lord, as we talk to our kids. Uh, we praise you for this church. Help us as a youth ministry, Lord, to be uh, better equipped to come alongside parents and to, to interact and stand in the gap at times when maybe it's difficult uh, within the home. We praise you and love you. Uh, guide our time today and give us a great Sabbath in Christ's name. Amen.